My guest, Britt East, tells his dark story of a deeply codependent relationship and having no family or community to rely on when his partner betrayed him by having sex with a minor. After horrific police brutality and an arrest, Britt's life was left in shambles. The saga does have a happy ending and a treasure trove of golden nuggets of wisdom in all that Britt shares. If you want to be inspired by Britt's courage and resilience, this episode is for you. Britt East, welcome to the Authentic Gay Man podcast. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you. It's great to see you again. Good to see you as well. So for the listeners, the way we know each other is the way I've introduced all my guests. It's the big uh, virtual gay group that we were in, so I won't go into any more detail than that. just to give a little history, Britt is an author. His book is A Gay Man's Guide to Life, Get Real, Stand Tall, and Take Your Place. I will drop a link in the show notes if you're interested in pursuing that a little bit farther. And is there anything you'd like to add, Britt? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think that's great. I really appreciate that. You know, I have a website, Britties.com, has everything on it, and I just keep it simple so it makes it easy for everybody. Awesome. We have been knowing each other for about six or seven months, I think, and it's been great. I've appreciated and really enjoyed every conversation we have had. And today we're going to go deep. So, Britt, tell me, what does being an authentic gay man mean to you? Well, you know, I've spent two decades thinking about this, and that was really, that question was the genesis for the book. Because I think like a lot of us, when I would engage with the gay community, whatever in the heck that even means, I felt a little lacking. And I could never quite find a place for myself. And then certainly in the straight world, especially because I'm the kind of gay who can't pass a straight, the kind of gay who's pretty easily clocked. Um, You know, I I definitely felt the rancor of straight supremacy and the weight of bias and bigotry in all facets of my life. So I wanted to find a way that a method, a path where I could be more fully expressed where I could be all of myself, maybe not in every situation, you know, I turn up the volume in some facets of my personality in a given situation and turn down the volume of other facets, maybe. But I was not, I was no longer wearing masks. And where I was no longer slapping on band-aids to treat my own um uh, to, you know, to treat my own issues, I was getting to root causes and working with experts. So I think all of that being said, being a fully authentic gay man is somebody who takes ownership over their life. And then like the subtitle of my book says, stands tall, never does not shrink from the world. Somebody who when it's their turn, grabs the mic, steps to the front of the stage, sings this, their song so that they can hear you in the cheap seats. Wow. 
I have cold chills running up and down my entire body right now. That was amazing. I mean, I'm literally choking up. I'm fighting back tears here. That was friggin' amazing. I mean, I've gotten a lot of great responses from that question, but honey, that was a drop the mic. (laughs) Thank you. Wow. I could go back and listen to that truthfully. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Next question. And the big question, what is the most challenging thing that you have had to overcome in this lifetime or are perhaps still in the process of overcoming? You know, we're going to go a little dark here. So let me start with the caveat of a little bit of a a trigger warning in that um, I'm just going to be really candid and honest, but I will give you uh, advance notice that there's a, a, a happy ending, that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and has been for a long time, but, um, you know, I'm just going to be real. Cause that's, that's the only way I know how to be, you know, to be fully authentic is to, to, to get real. And that's, that's for so many years of my life, what I was unwilling to do, what I thought I could not afford because I was desperately clinging to some alternative vision of my life. I, I, I just didn't, I just didn't get, I just wasn't being real. And it was not until what I'm about to walk you through happened that I finally started to get real and finally started to be who I was always meant to be. So in the mid nineties, I was with a boyfriend um, in a monogamous relationship for several years and we were both in our mid-20s well early 20s actually now that i think about it and that's pretty rare back then frankly i mean the mid-90s for gay men and in long-term monogamous relationships i mean you felt kind of like a pioneer obviously people plenty of people had come before us but in our social network we were the unique ones i'll say and so um it felt really special and wonderful but because of my background because of my family conditioning because of the child abuse that i experienced growing up i was patently unqualified to be in that kind of a relationship i was not yet authentic um i made him my everything i expected him to not only be a friend and a lover but also a mentor and a teacher. And we were the same age. Um, And I put all of this onto him without full awareness, much less communication. And so I was completely enmeshed. Um, I had had an excessive um, need for his approval. I had an excessive need for the relationship itself. I felt like I could not stand on my own two feet. In fact, I was desperately afraid um, to be alone. And there was another dynamic at play too, in that he was somebody that I deemed in my own homophobic way as quote unquote normal, meaning like me. Pains me to say that, it's so embarrassing. But that was a dynamic. And so I felt an amazing sense of relief when we first met that, okay, this is out there for me and I can have this kind of relationship and it's possible. I'm not doomed to die 
um, lonely and afraid I, from this exotic plague and these, you know, weird illnesses that we're all contracting as part of it. So in many ways, it felt like I had found this paradise on earth. And I say all that to kind of set you up for how hard I fell, how hard I crashed when one day, um, we were living in Chicago at the time, when one day a couple of police officers knocked on our door looking for him to arrest him for having sex with a minor. Oh, wow. I, I had grown up in such a sheltered environment that was not even part of my um, awareness. I didn't really know things like that happened, um, especially in the gay community. You know, that's a, an old trope, an old homophobic trope, you know, bolstered through white supremacy, through the uh, straight supremacy through the years that were all kind of sexual predators preying on the, the youth. And it's so resonated with me. That's just patently false. And it is. And yet as queer people, we're all individuals working through all of our various individual issues. And some of us break the law in a variety of ways. And so I learned some harsh lessons at that time. The police um, pretended to be UPS delivery people and buzzed the intercom. We lived in an apartment building and asking for his name. And I just pretended to be him thinking it was a package and I would just sign it and they'd go away. And I wouldn't have to like go pick it up at some delivery center or something, you know, um, they knocked on the door and I opened it and they pushed into the apartment looking for him. One of them started ransacking the apartment. The other one started grilling me because I had said I was him. So it took me some time to prove that I was me. They didn't believe me at first, of course. They thought I was lying. Um, once they realized I, that I was me, they started in very homophobic graphic details, trying to disgust me, trying to annihilate his reputation in my eyes, and then started making threats on his life and my life, culminating with beating me. Um, I remember clear as day, almost politely, one of the police officers asked me if I had ever been hit. I mean, really been hit. This was so far out of the realm of my experience. I can't tell you. I grew up so sheltered that it just cracked open my life. I didn't know what to do. And to my undying shame, I complied. And I told them where to find him. He was at work. This, you know, it was easy for me to give him his address. And they pick him up and arrest him. I get a call from the police station telling me what's happening. Um, and I have to go find a lawyer. And at the time we were poor. I was a classical musician and we were just starting out in life, just had finished grad school and, um, you know, didn't have a ton of money by any stretch. And so I found an attorney. He, he found an attorney. He gave me the contact information. I made contact. I went down there 
And then I had like the quintessential cliche attorney experience where you walk in and it's like leather, everything, pictures of senators on the walls. It's totally impressive and intimidating to my, I mean, I was like 24 at the time or something um, to my eyes. And um, he started to ask me what the issue was. And I started to tell him and he stopped me after a few sentences and said, you know, I don't care about any of that. I don't care about what happened. I'm not interested in any of that. I just, I need to know how much money you have. And so um, I told him and he said, you know, that would be fine. Um, That would cover it. And so he took all of that money and, um, you know, I said, well, I, I think we have a problem because I think he may have actually done this. He was accused. I think the, the, um, boy he was with was, I think like 15 years old, 16 years old. He's like right on the cusp of the legal definition of, um, in the state of Illinois, it might've, the, the statute might've been written to be called statutory rape. I'm not sure. I can't really remember what it, what it was. Um, but these age of consent laws are driven by the state. They vary widely state by state, or at least they did in the, um, in the late nineties when this happened. And, um, and this kid was right on the, right on the cusp. Um, but you know, it was still the law is the law. I mean, and so I started to talk to this lawyer, you know, I think that, you know, that maybe this really happened. You know, there had been some, cues along the way some clues along the way that in hindsight I had started to piece together and the lawyer again was like I don't want to hear any of that you know um I'm going to make this go away for you don't worry about it this happens this kind of thing happens all the time it's really no big deal um he said you know you're you you're good looking kids and this is going to be just fine so it was made immediately clear that we had the right skin color we had the right presentation um, we were going to get in the express lane of the judicial system. And that's how, what how were you feeling about all that at the time, Brett? What was going on inside of you? I was completely devastated um, and had no, because like I said, at the start of the conversation, I had not yet built a community or, or had a family that I could draw on for help. And, and he was in the middle of disclosing this episode to his family. So it's not like there was, I mean, this is right at the dawn of the internet and everything. So it's not like there was all these resources at my fingertips. I was just kind of careening from um, one thing I had to get done to the other. So part of it was just ultra focused. I, I knew I didn't want him to, it was one thing to be in lockup. It's another thing to be in the general population of the of the city jail um and i was just desperately this was on a friday so i was desperately trying to get everything taken care of before the weekend happened they closed and um he got he got put away so you know it was panic it was devastation it was confusion it was bewilderment it was betrayal it was also focus so that i could and you know part of me was like well i could just disappear because you know fuck him and so, um, but I chose to stay not out of any, not out of any magnanimity, not out of any high mindedness, but out of sheer desperation, because I had an excessive emotional reliance on him. 
I was completely codependent and enmeshed. That, that dynamic was magnified by my lack of um, social network and community. I really had nothing to draw upon. Um, so in the court, we get in the court, the lawyer talks to the to the judge um, about playing golf together um, the upcoming weekend. The whole you know process takes maybe five minutes and then it's just gone. The judge is just like, oh yeah, you're white and good looking and just makes it all go away. Just everything, every cliche about the criminal justice system in the in the U.S. that you hear about, it was like contained in this this one experience. And so he gets he gets out and comes home, and I expected some contrition, and he was still consumed by the self absorbed panic. You know, okay, I need to destroy the hard drive of all the ways I communicated with this kid and I mean, any images I might have and all this, he was still in, in that kind of fight or flight mode. And I realized like there was never going to really be an I'm sorry or any sort of gratitude, um, you know, that would equal what we had gone through. And so Again, I had that moment where it's like, well, what in the heck am I going to do? I think I have to leave him. This is so huge. I just don't know what to do. He decided that he was going to leave the country to go find himself. So he went on a backpacking journey through India for six months. And then what I decided I was going to do was really in invest in my career as a classical musician and go to some festivals and um, just explore what life would be like a separate and apart. And afterwards, we came back together to kind of reconvene and see, okay, what makes sense? And he realized in India, oh, changing the locale is not changing this thing inside of me, whatever it is. I still have these inclinations. I still have these desires that I can't seem to get rid of. This is a much bigger issue than I realized. I thought a vacation from life might cure me. And he, I was just as lost and afraid and confused and in love and all of that in this soup with him and not ready or able, frankly, could not afford yet to stand on my own two feet and, and move on my own. So we decided to make a clean break and move clear across the country to Seattle. He had grown up in Vancouver, British Columbia, and um, um and I had never really experienced Seattle. I grew up in Tennessee. And so this was like a fun adventure. And so we moved out here and where I live, I still live in Seattle. Um, this is now over 20 years ago. And um, he's he joined a 12-step program um, for sex addicts and, and disclosed to me that, hey, this is a compulsion that I have that has rendered my life unmanageable. And I didn't know what sex addiction was. I, I had never heard of that term. I thought addiction was really about drugs and alcohol only. And this was really, at, you know, at the forefront where people started realizing that any kind of compulsive mood altering behavior could be addictive. And um, so he joined this program and started to get better. And that was the ultimate slap in the face. He started to become healthier and happier and started to refrain from um, whatever behaviors that he was engaged in. And 
that drew me into a program of recovery myself, a companion program called Codependence of uh, Sex Addicts Anonymous, COSA, COSA. Um, it's like Al-Anon is to AA. It's a companion program for the families and spouses of addicts where you can work on your codependency. You work the same 12 steps in kind of a slightly different way. And that program saved my life. Sitting in those rooms with those people, that is where I first started to get real. I started to feel the thrill of togetherness. I will never forget that sensation of being laid bare. The people that were in that program had been through all manner of things that I think the general public might find distasteful or surprising, but that put us on equal footing. And so there was no sort of outlandish story that was too much. We were just free to be together and to share information, to share resources. And it was also my first time having a real community that was based on my true authentic self. Again, because previously in my life, I'd had friends and stuff like that. Don't get me wrong, but I was wearing masks. I was hiding for self-preservation. And that dynamic over years had become ingrained in my neurology, it became a, a, a habitualized way of thinking and experiencing the world. To me, the world occurred as fear. And so, of course, I hid from it or I fought it. And this was the first time that I allowed people to see who I truly was and where I found my voice. I had been a writer my whole life, mainly in poetry and um, so I had done a lot of speaking as part of that. I'd also been a teacher as part of classical music, but I was able to bring all of these strands together and help others. I was able to use the pain that I had endured so that others might have it a little easier or have more knowledge or wisdom, experience, strength, and hope at their fingertips. I mean, don't get me wrong. If I had my druthers, I would wave a magic wand and never had experienced this. I don't believe that everything happens for a reason. I think everything happens for lots of reasons, many of which are largely outside of our control. But we can take anything that happens to us and use it to deepen our hearts and love more fully. And that's what I have tried to do. I agree. You, you've taken a really, really painful, painful experience. And, you know, there's basically two kinds of people in the world. Those that take the high road and parlay that experience into uh, a, a gift, if you will. And then there's those people that live in pain throughout their lives and and die with that pain because they never could. Um, see it from a healthy perspective. They never could see the glass half full, in other words, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, he and I are still friends. In fact, our husbands are friends and we get together from time to time. So the story really does have a happy ending. We did split up eventually for, for other reasons. I think mainly because we were so young and ourselves had so had not yet formed. There was no template for our lives that when we grew up and became more authentic, we realized, eh, 
you know, somebody could probably love us a little bit better. And so we split amicably several years later after moving out here and, and still remain really close to this day. And I would not have that relationship had I not um, done the work along the way to and chosen love. Now, I do want to be clear, like I said, especially at the beginning and largely through the process, it was not a high-minded choice. It was one out of desperation. But I think what that shows is you can take any choice and choose and use it to love more deeply. And that's over time what I did, one foot in front of the other. I'd, so I don't want anybody to make any conclusion about how wise I was or how spiritual I was. None of that was true. Believe me. Believe me when I tell you I was an empty vessel, but that meant I could one day fill it with what I, with who I was truly meant to be. And that's what I've done over time. That's beautiful. That's a, a very challenging story. I, I, I've never actually heard anything quite like that. And when, you know, just, you know, for the, for full transparency with the listeners, I had no idea what Brett was going to talk about when we came on this podcast. I knew that he had a challenging thing, and that's as far as it went. So this is, I'm hearing this for the first time, as you guys are. Um, what would you say, how has that experience contributed to the life that you live now? I, I look... <laughs> I've always been really judgmental. I've always, I think for some reason, my experience with the closet was once I came out and realized the depths of denial to which I had sunk, I became almost paranoid uh, about re-experiencing something like that. So in the name of truth, I sorted people. I read them, at least in my mind. I judge them, at least value judgments, if not moral judgments, almost as a defense mechanism. And here through this experience, I sank to what I would have previously deemed the lowest of the low. I mean, hugging people who have molested children, having them fall apart in my arms, hugging people who have raped others. And again only i was only there because my life had been obliterated but so what that has done since that has informed a, a, a sense of equanimity that i am now able to take each moment that i experience with people and instead of panning out and and connecting the dots with whatever story that i might write to fill in the gaps that I may not yet know about them, whatever judgments I might concoct, I'm able to take each moment for what it is, just purely the here and now. Wow, that's deep. Like, can you can you break that down in maybe what we would refer to as more layman's terms? Because yeah. that that was such a high level. I mean, I've done personal growth work for nearly forty years, and there was some of what you just said went, you know, <laughs> over my head. So, yeah. if that's the case, I know it's maybe doing that with some of the listeners. Can you can you break it down in a more elementary type way? Because I yeah. think what you're you're talking about is 
really powerful. And I want, I want, I want to get what you're saying. And I, and I want the listeners to as well. Absolutely. Um, so my program of recovery led me to all sorts of other modalities like Buddhism, yoga, nonviolent communication, the Hoffman process. There's all sorts of modalities out there where we can learn to meet ourselves maybe for the very first time. And so that's where some of this language might come in that, that starts to deviate from um, kind of 12 step jargon is um, before this experience, I lived purely for the future, this mental projection that I would make about how I thought life should be. And then I would attempt to orient my life in that way. But the thing about the future is it is inherently unknowable. And when we try to ascribe some outcome and get then get attached to it, we're chasing ghosts. We are self-limiting. Oh, yes. I love that you call that out, self-limiting, because if you're so fixated on this vision that you've concocted, you don't create much space for exactly. something better. Exactly. Exactly. And often it looks very different than we might imagine. And it's it's a shame when we so desperately cling to something we think that should be, thereby saying no to all the other things that might have been. And so what I mean, what I meant before is that in my relationships with others, there would be aspects of their life, of course, that I would not know or understand. There would be choices that they would make that would not necessarily jibe with me, that would feel painful for me, that would be curious or seem strange. And I would often try and connect those dots in my mind. So I was living from this space of almost mental projection. And then out of that came all sorts of value judgments or maybe even moral judgments. And what this recovery process has allowed me to do as a practice, there are no finish lines. So it's not like I do this perfectly, but as a practice to take a step back, to get still and quiet and allow each moment to be what it is, which is purely the here and now. That's all that we ever have. It, the past is a mental projection. The future is a mental projection. All we can experience is a sequence of moments, one moment after another. And when I live in that moment, I forget all about the judgments that I might place on somebody. I forget all about the fear. I forget all about the um, all my attempts to reason their motives for their choices. All of that just falls away. Mm, that's beautiful. And in in discovering the ability to do that, and as you said, it's it's a an ongoing practice thing it's not something you've arrived it's it's a lifelong journey but in that journey i'm i'm hearing that you have attained a level of mastery with that and i'd love to know what what has that level of mastery and, and that ability brought to your life that maybe you didn't have before you started practicing what you're practicing? 
Yeah, I mean, I believe there are no enlightened people. There are only enlightened choices and enlightened moments. It's all about the choice in the moment. Um, people are far too complex to reduce to a, a few choices that we have witnessed. There's all, all sorts of choices and actions and history and stories that each of us have that deserve to be heard that largely go unwitnessed. So to, to try and take the measure of someone without knowing their peaks and valleys is just patently silly. So being the, the, the practice, the fruits of the practice of allowing each moment to fully reside and express its own majesty means you have the opportunity to say yes to things you otherwise would never have considered. When you're constantly making resolutions and setting goals and achieving, like so many of us are oriented to do in our capitalist society in the U.S., we're, we are living our lives based on a lie, based on whatever story we happen to be telling ourselves. And so when we, scroll, when we peel back the curtain and get to the heart of the moment, that allows more love to be expressed in the here and now. That allows things to grow in that space that otherwise would have not had the space to grow. So for instance, a specific example in my life is the book. People had been telling me for 20 years I needed to write this book, and I was resistant to it because I had a vision for my life that did not include a personal growth and development book. I had all sorts of reasons. I had all sorts of stories. And it took someone, it took a mentor to sit down with me and move all of those stories to the side to then create the space requisite for that book to blossom for that to almost like a flower it needs that space and so the writing of the book came really fast and effortlessly almost ridiculously so um, i think it took six months which is unheard of because i just dwelled i spent time practicing the dwelling in that and the residing inside of that moment each day rather than trying to manufacture my own moments based on the way I th thought things should have been. Yeah. Wow. Once again, deep. I love it. I love it. Well, tell, tell us a little bit about um, your life now. I mean, I know you have a, a long-term partner and, and, Tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, where, where you are now and what that looks like and what you love about it. Yeah. So like I said, we live in Seattle um, um, with my husband of 12 years. We have a crazy dog who um, thankfully has not been barking. <laughs> so that's always a minor miracle. Um, you know, we, we have a, a, a tiny house in the suburbs and we live a really simple life. He's an avid gardener. He probably spends five hours a day in the garden. So our garden looks like something out of a magazine. Um, we love traveling the world, which has been tough during a pandemic, but we've been so privileged and fortunate to go to so many places, visit so many places all over the world. And it's probably our main 
passion and and and, and play and um we have been able to um you know build a small simple life based on love commitment and community which has resulted from one choice at a time one after another it has not magically landed in our lap this love this community was just one, a series of choices one after another and so that's that and that's what we like we want a nice simple quiet life um and um so it's it's a it's it's an absolute pleasure and a privilege and because i understand and have at least an inkling of awareness of just how fortunate i've been i've just become devoted to giving what little bit i have to as many people as i can whether through speaking or podcasts or through writing articles and blogs and social media posts or the book i just you know i believe that we can't really keep something unless we give it away and so i just want to give as much as i can mm, i love that beautiful i feel that way myself so you talk about the first relationship the enmeshment the codependency and no sense of community you had a family that you couldn't rely on and nobody around you he was the only person now all these years later it sounds like that's very different can you speak to the community aspect of it and how you did bring that community on board and what that what that looks like and what it means and what it affords you it's so easy to get trapped in our stories about how we think our community should look and for years that kept me trapped as well especially my stories like i said earlier about the quote unquote gay community i had all sorts of ideas about how the gay community should be what they should look like what they should do and it wasn't until i relinquished those stories that i was able to build a community from all walks of life various races and ethnicities sexual orientations gender orientations gender expressions based on non-judgment mm, yeah that would be required wouldn't it if you were going to go with that kind of a diversity people that are so different than you um yes you you would have to relinquish the judgments it's a political act of resistance in u.s society to befriend people out of your race to befriend people out of your sexual orientation and, and culture um it's a it's a takes a lot of work and you we we all swim in this soup of white supremacy and male supremacy and straight supremacy every day none of us are immune from it and so each day it's incumbent upon us to take stock of our choices and figure out where we've gone wrong what we could have done a little bit better make amends make apologies where required this is straight out of the 12 steps this is not new wisdom um and to work as tirelessly as we can to bring down these systems of supremacy um but for now they are in place and 
I just every day try and find little ways that I can chip away at it. And there's nothing more potent at doing that than one-to-one communion, meaning sitting down with one friend at a time and sharing our tender hearts. I love that. Oh, please say that again. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, this... You know, communities are built one friend at a time, largely, and we're not going to get out of it by shirking vulnerability. It's going to take, we're going to have to go to the places that scare us. And for most of us, that means exposing our tender hearts. You're right. And and the place that generally happens is on a one-on-one basis. You know, I um, I tell this story frequently when when I got involved in uh, the big virtual gay group that I was part of. I'm not part of anymore, um, and and there was you know a, a specific reason for that. It was a it was a a values issue. I'll leave it at that. Um, but in during my time there, I certainly met a lot of really wonderful quality men. You being one of those men. And I tell the story about in my first 90 days of being in that online community that I reached out and and requested and executed over 40 one-on-one Zoom calls in a 90-day period of time. And when I tell that, if if my audience is, is a gay man, he looks at me like I have three heads without fail. Like, like they can't even fathom that. And um, it was, it was a total joy. I I mean, some I resonated with really, really well. And I, and I continue to, to zoom with them because they're spread all over the world, you know, mostly all over the country, but some across the pond and in other areas. And, and then some of them, you know, I didn't resonate with as well. And those, those fell away and naturally. Um, but I continue to have one-on-one meetings with uh, quite a sizable number of those men. I I was in a Zoom, this has been maybe two or three weeks ago, and it was a gentleman that I had Zoomed with multiple times. And I had a moment during our Zoom where I got very emotional, and I made reference to I'm I'm having I'm having a moment. I just said I'm having a moment. I didn't I didn't apologize. I didn't make any excuses. I just acknowledged that I was having a moment. Tears were rolling down my face. I got a little choked up. And the man on the other end said, I don't think I've ever been in a conversation with you that you didn't have a moment. He said, It's just who you are, and it's beautiful. And it was so affirming. And and I think that I've come to feel so at peace with that part of myself. And it's such a natural part of me that I don't really, I wasn't aware that I had had been emotional each time that he and I had, had spoken. So it was really quite a beautiful thing for him to call that out, you know, and say, well, this is the way we roll. This is, this is normal. This is who you are. And he acknowledged me for it and complimented me and and honored me. It was just a beautiful thing. But I, I have 
lived a lot of my life like you in, in uh, unable to to uh, be be vulnerable and to be authentic i wore lots of masks and i lived in a you know we talk about armor from time to time i lived in a fortress there was uh, armor no no it was a fortress and and it was like port knox fortress it's only been for me I, you you say you you made the the jump 20 over 20 years ago um what a what a beautiful thing to come through that into the other side and 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 reconnect with your authentic self because i believe we come into the world fully authentic and then we get separated from it through our life experiences but for you to reconnect with that part of yourself at the time you did in your life wow I, i'm in awe you know i i'm i'm newly a, a senior and it's only been in the last 3 years that i have really fully connected with that aspect of myself where now I mean, I will say that my superpower is vulnerability. Mm. And I, I, I clearly have experienced and, and believe that it builds bridges, it opens doors, and it clears pathways in a way that nothing else can. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's amazing. So I'd love to hear a little bit about this diverse community that you have built one human being at a time um what what is it what does it look like and how how did you do that i mean i know how i've kind of approached it because i have a fairly diverse group of friends not quite as diverse as what you're um expressing just because the opportunity hasn't really presented itself yet because i i would go there i love diversity i i think it adds interest to life. Um, I, I don't want a whole room full of clones that are just like me. I mean, we want to have some things in common. Of course, we want to have some common ground that draws us together, but that's more of our internal working that, and, and less of maybe what age we are or, or what body type we are or what color our skin is or what, what country we came from. Um, there's so much to learn and gain from being around people that are different than me. I'm fascinated and and I'm and I welcome it. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about your process. Well, what you described about yourself separates you from unfortunately many um, gay cis men, especially white men in the US, who, truth be told, in many cases, for all sorts of reasons, largely beyond their, you know, initial control, at least, um, are still careening from crisis to crisis, slapping on band-aids instead of treating root causes. Um, so many gay white cis men are real happy to just hang out with other gay white cis men because it's hot. And that's an intentionally loaded and provocative statement. So that's already separated from you and you've cultivated that sense of willingness and openness. So that's step one. Like you said, we're born fully authentic and then through family programming and societal programming and all this other stuff, things get laid on us that we have to chip away. It's like how a sculptor removes all of the, the pieces of the sculpture that are not the sculpture itself. 
In the same way, that's how we build a life. We chip away all that is not us. We also have the added challenge that when we're looking for, when we seek people in the queer community, we have to reckon with the fact that we are a tiny minority. Something like 6% of the population in the U.S. self-identifies as queer. And of course, we're born randomly throughout the country in all different life experiences and ages. So 330 million people, I mean, 6% of that, that's a, that's a small number when you think about how lives play out. I talk to people all the time who live in rural America and um, wrestling with this fact. And th there's, there's just no magic wand to make that go away or, or be different. Now, of course, as culture changes and um, people who are used to primarily heterosexual relationships become more fluid, become less attached to labels, expand and broaden their tastes and become okay with that and create um, increased safety in all our communities, that may shift somewhat. But I suspect in the near term, people who self-identify as queer will always be um, dwarfed by the straight world. And that's just something we have to, to own and understand. And what that means pragmatically is that we that if we're, if we're going to get serious about, uh, about having queer relationships, we're just shooting ourselves in the foot if we expect them to look like us or act like us or... Um, not to mention, like you said so beautifully, all that we're denying ourselves in terms of the richness of diversity and um, all the, the wealth of experiences they will bring to our lives. It's just not an effective strategy to say, okay, I'm only going to be friends with um, you know, white, cis, gay men of a, a certain age and height and weight. With eye Ooh. color and hair color. I mean, yeah. we, we go granular with that, don't we? It, yeah, it, live in a certain like, neighborhood. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, and it does limit us in ways that, um, wow, you so eloquently just really called that out. I, I, I've never thought of it in those terms. I personally have always been drawn to a variety. I Always. I don't know why. I don't know how, how that I came by that. I've always been drawn to people of other races and people of the vast majority of my friends are not my age. Mm. I have a couple of friends that are a little bit older than I am, but the vast majority of my friends are, are younger. I mean, I told one of my friends yesterday, I mean, my friends are younger because I you know, I don't consider myself a peepaw. I'm a senior, but I don't consider myself a peepaw. And so many men that I meet that are my age are peepaws. And I, I mean, I, it's it's not their age that I have a problem with. It's I just don't want to hang out with fuddy-duddy people. You know, I don't care if you're 70, if you if you're energetic and want to have some fun, let's go. But, you know... I, I don't see very much of that. So most of my friends are younger and I have such an appreciation for young people. I, I have a couple of friends in their twenties that bring so much to my life. Well, what you're describing is an innate curiosity and empathy that frankly, a lot of guys don't have, you know, we as, especially if we're talking about white 
gay, cis men, we are kind of at the top of the social pecking order. We're socialized first is probably white people. Second is probably men. And then probably third is gay. So there's all sorts of privilege that comes with that. And so many of us are kind of preening in that privilege and not reckoning with the, the lived experiences of people with that are, you know, maybe neurodiverse um, thinkers or have different experience, different physical limitations or have different um, skin tones and hair textures and, you know, speak different languages. So we're not forced to reckon with that. So many of us don't. And so many of us are incurious. We're just trying to get through the day. We're just tired from work. We're just trying to have something in our savings account, maybe have a vacation once a year, maybe have a nice boyfriend to come home to. That's already a lot of work. And then we haven't even yet started to reckon with all of our privileges. And so you have this innately and not everybody does. And so I think that's step two is cultivating that curiosity and empathy to see people as they truly are. Well, and that only happens when you stop making all of life about you. Exactly. You know, and, and maybe that's something that, I mean, I can recall a time when life was all about me. Maybe that's something that comes with maturity or wisdom. I don't, I don't know, you know? Well, I think there's a certain safety as well. Like, I think that for queer people, you know, or maybe anybody that's experiencing bigotry, life has to be kind of about us just so we can survive and get to the next moment. But after, um, you know, like the saying goes, it gets better. And after we reach a certain station in life, many of us find that we have actually accumulated a lot of wealth. And I don't just mean finance, um, financial wealth um, or, or having a fat savings account. What I'm talking about is we've invested so much in ourselves that we can now afford to see people who they, who, as who they truly are. We, we are no longer mired in our own desperation. We're, we don't have to be so self-interested and, and selfish just to get through the day. We can actually afford to invest in others. And and perhaps that also brings us to a place where we're less threatened by people that are different than we exactly. are. Exactly. Because we have created more of a sense of self. We have more personal authenticity and that breeds resilience. We I'm, can I'm, take more of what life throws at us and roll with the punches. We have a we have a, a greater almost it's almost like a bank account for life you know, where we can draw down that account based on our seasoning, our our lived experiences, all of our wisdom, and we can afford to share it with others. We don't have to hoard it any longer just to survive. We're already thriving. Yes. Yes. Well said. I love it. I, I recently joined an association for gay coaches and uh, we just had a two-day virtual retreat the latter part of this last week. And I discovered that they have a group within them. They call the DEI, which stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And um, I, I, my ears just perked right up. I mean, I reached out to one of them and said, I want to know more. I, I, I'm I'm depending on what the time commitment is, if I've got the bandwidth, I'm interested in being on that committee because that fascinates me. I want to be part of the a movement. I mean, it, that's a, 
that's doing it in a, in a small group, but that's where it starts. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to be part of a movement that affects the whole globe where we move towards diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I would say I'm a card-carrying feminist. Um, once I really understood what that what that term really means, um, there are there are feminists and then there are feminists, and there is uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding out there. I've I've realized. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, we we have had for generations, gay men and cis men and and straight cis women have had a really special bond that has been celebrated throughout mass media and almost even become a cliche. Um, because we were each other's safe spaces in, in so many beautiful ways. And yet there's also a dark shadow to that, that often goes unacknowledged, which is the misogyny perpetuated by gay cis men, especially white cis men. And so I think it's important for us to really take stock and ask ourselves about how we are um, um how we are addressing the systemic issues, but also in our personal lives, creating space for all people to shine, regardless of their gender orientation or expression. For instance, if we are commenting upon women's bodies, even if we think they are in ways that are praiseful, based on the setting, that can actually erode their agency. For instance, if we're at work talking about how great one of our our, our friends looks in that dress, that can have unintended consequences that we're not even aware of in, of, in terms of her professional standing in, in that office. Another thing I ask gay guys to think about is when was the last time you hit the streets and marched with women for a cause that had nothing to do with you? We have a big one coming up with abortion rights that will likely be stripped in the U.S. and in many states coming up in June with the Supreme Court decision that's pending. How many gay guys are going to be out marching with women? Wow, what a great question to ask. And I mean, like you you just bullseye, you kind of hit me right between the eyes. <sighs> because I, I, I haven't, I haven't done anything like that but I could see myself doing something like that. You know, I, a lot of my work throughout my entire life has been around women and, and I, I haven't, I haven't been the, um, I'm an advocate, but I, I haven't been a, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on a word we use all the time. Um, well, you know, the term that's got, that's gained favor now is moving from an ally um, to an accomplice. We're used to thinking of accomplice as being kind of a pejorative term, but in this case, it's actually putting attitude into action. An ally has great intentions. An ally sees people for who they truly are. An ally questions their own participation in the various forms of systemic oppression and supremacy, but then doesn't maybe necessarily take a whole lot of action other than that introspection. That's kind of where it ends. Whereas an accomplice leverages all that thinking, that introspection, and puts attitude into action. In this case, the the one I was making a a few minutes ago hits the streets. Yeah. What a beautiful distinction. I I love that. And I have to say, you have 
certainly opened my eyes to something that I will, this very thought provoking, I will, I will be spending time on, on this personal reflection time and looking at what I want that to look like moving forward. And sometimes it boils down to kind of a bandwidth issue. You know, there's so many things that I want to do and, you know, and then there's just one of me, if I could clone myself, oh my gosh, because the interest is definitely there. Yeah. I mean, these are the rough, very real choices that we all wrestle with um, daily. Um, We cannot do it all and we have to feed ourselves first. Um, So that's the reason why I wrote this book first is because I wanted people to, to learn how to create programs of personal replenishment to get their career in order, to get their body in order, to get their relationships in order so that they have a solid foundation that they can draw from, that they can leap off of, leap into life to experience even more life, thus becoming more invested in service work, thus becoming shifting from being just allies and becoming accomplices. Um, But there's no end to the work that needs to be done. And so we have to be so selective about the projects that we take on and also practice kindness and compassion for ourselves and all that we can't do. We have to learn to love our limits. Yes, I agree. I I have shiny object syndrome. And so (laughs) I have to be very, you know, somebody's always offering something and showing me something. And I have those squirrel moments and and I have to, you know, somebody threw out something to me just yesterday, a dear friend threw out to something to me. And I, and I had to say, you know what, I, you know, I have shiny object syndrome and I am, I've got a bandwidth issue right now and I need to stay focused on, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, And I, I was really proud of myself for, you know, setting the boundary first with me, you know, setting the boundary saying, no, you're not taking on one more thing right now. <laughs> and then setting the the boundary with, with my friend that was making the offer. It felt really em- empowering to do yeah, that. Because the, the universe will tempt you. As soon as you raise your hand, the universe is like, oh, all right, okay. You know, and like you said, you got to take stock and and sometimes you make tough decisions and sometimes your decisions really tick people off. Yes. And and at the end of the day, I got to put me first. You said that a minute ago. At the end of the day, I got to put me first because nobody else is going to do that for me. So it's absolutely required. Well, I love everything that you have brought to the table today. I really enjoyed your story. And yes, it was dark, but it got light. There was light at the end of the tunnel. It was a beautiful story. And there's been so many um, golden nuggets of wisdom in this. So there certainly has for me. I hope there has been for the listener as well. Anything else you'd like to add before we jump into our rapid fire questions? You know, I just want to share that from the bottom bottom of my heart, I, I really believe that we are all in this together. I mean, I truly think if that each of us took a little less, we would all have so much more and that there is no greater wisdom than kindness. Mm, Beautiful. And I fully agree. I fully agree. Uh, And, and it's, it's, you know, I read something today that, you know, happiness, happiness is not something that you just attain it's it's a choice that you make every day it was it was a 
it was a metaphor and I can't remember. It was a really great metaphor, <laughs> but it, it is a moment to moment choice, you know, and, it, and it's not just being kind to the people that you love. <laughs> it's being kind Would that to that were the case. <laughs> everybody, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's about That's being kind point. to yeah. the woman checking your groceries out or, 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 or the man that is emptying your trash or what, what you know, or, it's, it's or, or to Republican accosting you in an airport for wearing a mask. Yeah, exactly. And that's not always easy to do. It sure isn't. It's not always easy to do. So, well, thank you for those golden nuggets so much. Rapid fire question number one. <laughs> when was the last time you cried in front of another gay man? Um, let's see. Well, I live with a gay man, so it's probably cheating, and that would be last night, because I'm a big crier. I didn't know that about you. Oh, yeah. I'm 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 really tough on the outside, but I'm a I'm a, a really proud sissy. Um, oh, I resonate with you even it. more now. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm the same way, you know? I mean, all of my friends will say, mm, don't fuck with Maddox because uh-uh. <laughs> he didn't let anybody fuck with him. Then one of my, somebody posted recently, Maddox doesn't take shit off of anyone. And I wrote, she had written a whole bunch of things about me, but one of them was he doesn't take shit off anybody. I wrote her out and I said, out of all the things you said, that one was the one that was the biggest compliment (laughs) because I have a history of bullying. And so I've Mm. come to the other side. No, I don't take shit off of anyone. Mm. So yes, I'm, I'm a crier. So it's nice. I did not know that about you. I love that. I am a sucker for a man that can cry straight gay. I don't care. You know? I'm just it a just sucker feels for a so darn, Yeah, me too. It just feels so darn good. I don't understand. Like, I know I get cognitively why, how we're socialized as men in particular, but I just like, it just feels so good. Just try it. It feels good. I promise. It feels amazing. And I heard a study recently where scientists, medical, whatever have, have the research has proven that our tears have cortisol in them. Yeah, exactly. So tears are a way that we, when we have too much cortisol, that stress hormone, that our body releases some of that. And when we hold back and we don't cry, all of that cortisol stays in our bloodstream. And dudes, if you're listening to this, that shit's killing you. Literally. 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 So question number two on a scale of one to 10, one being the worst and 10 being the best how would you rate yourself as an authentic gay man? Oh, I'm pretty hard on myself. Let's see. Um, and, and so the only caveat I'm going to give is, like I said, it's a moment by moment practice. So I'm going to give myself a seven. Okay. Beautiful. If you had only moments to live, what would be your greatest regret? I'm filled with regrets. I almost don't trust somebody who doesn't have regrets because um, I'm just so filled with them. So I'm somebody like I, I hold every slight that I've um, given somebody else. Um, I cringe at all the things I say in retrospect. I um, and for a long time. And so what I have to do is I have to um, alchemize those into art 
um, into um, so writing, music, things like that, um, because otherwise they would just um, weigh me down. But I've got so many, I've got so many regrets. Um, I think the biggest um, regret, though, and this will sound kind of maybe esoteric or something, is but but it's the one I feel truly the most deeply, the most poignantly, is the um, that I took everything so damn seriously. Man, am I guilty of that? <laughs> wow. Golly, I'm beginning to think you and I are twins <laughs> separated at birth. There's so much of what you're telling me is 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 my story. Um yeah. So I'm curious, in in all of that regret that you feel, does forgiveness play a role in that? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't get out of bed if I weren't forgiving myself, forgiving myself daily, and you know, forgiving others, and um, yeah, uh, it's it's just an ongoing practice. And I'm, I, you know, I'm kind of weird in that I've never held forgiveness in that much esteem because for me, it's been um, part of my life for so long, and I think something that comes somewhat effortlessly. So maybe I, I'm just take people at their word that it's really challenging for, for people um, to do. I will say that it, there's a lot of it that has to be done in my life by me. I'm talking about forgiving myself, forgiving others. And, um, but it, it doesn't, I mean, it feels like children forgive on the playground. You know, it's like, why is it so hard for adults to forgive? I, I've never really kind of, it seems kind of curious to me, but well, Forgiveness has to be at the heart of any personal practice of replenishment. I'll say that. Ch- children, when they're operating from that place of that natural authenticity before it's been taken away from them, they've been or separated from themselves, that part of themselves. I think I think it's a role of authenticity. I, I think that it's easy for them to forgive. You're right, man. A, a, a kid... 15 minutes after somebody's done them wrong, they've forgotten all about it and they're yeah, playing they again. They moved on. You know, the, the biggest misconception about forgiveness, I think, is that people believe if I forgive somebody that's done me wrong, I'm condoning what they've did, done or I'm making it okay. And nothing could be farther from the truth. Right. Forgiveness never has anything to do with the other person. Exactly. Forgiveness is always about us. It is about setting yourself free. Right. And that's probably why I'm so good at it is because I'm really interested in my own freedom. And so it's like, because it's purely a selfish act or self-interested act, um, (laughs) maybe that's why it's come so naturally to me, but it's, I, I completely agree. It's the other person really has nothing to do with it. It's all stories anyway, that we've written about the other person. So it's really about it's really about a self-interest in our own personal freedom. Well, an unwillingness to forgive, holding a grudge is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. Exactly. It doesn't work that way. Our exactly. our, our unwillingness to forgive is poisoning us. Right. And and it too is literally killing us. Literally. Well, beautiful. This has been amazing. I can't thank you enough for coming on and being a guest. I want to leave you with one thing. You 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 gave your you rated yourself a seven. I just want to say that in my eyes, you are indeed an authentic gay man. Oh, I meant to say 27. 
27. Oh, that, I, I, <laughs> stand corrected. I love it. I love it. Great. This was awesome. Brett, thank you so much. I know this is going to um, uplift and, and enlighten a lot of, a lot of listeners. I, I don't have any doubt so at all. Much. Thank you. It was, it was wonderful to spend time with you. Thank you. It was wonderful to spend time with you as well, my friend.